This is a show about getting spooked for fun, and neither one of the hosts are associated with the attractions discussed in any way, except for those skeletons in Devin's closet. Some topics may go from ghoulish to ghastly, so viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to The Great American Scream. You seem to laugh when we started up the Zoom. Why is that? Do you have something you need to share with the class? Um, you kind of the towel is yes. giving me uh, what's a little uh, what's her name? Uh, little little Edie. Edie. Well, okay, you do have to. I mean, Little Edie helps, but you can't just say the towel because that may make people think I am wearing only a towel. Oh no, there's other clothes. <laughs> yeah, I am wearing other clothes. I did put this tank top on over. That while this was on, okay. If you could give, if you could paint a kind of audio picture for the people, we just yeah, sure yeah, yeah. Good. yeah. Um, so Devin, well, you've got the headphones over the towel, which is also yep. good. Um, mm-hmm. but also, may I say, very tightly wrapped. Thank you. Like I was afraid. I, I that this is full disclosure. This is also how I dry my hair. Um, mm. but if I do it like too tight, I'm always afraid that it's gonna rip the little hairs out of my little noggin. Yeah, just pull. I always so Adam's not doing a very good job of painting a visual picture. <laughs> I'm wearing a towel wrapped around my head, like yeah. like the ladies typically do. Yeah. Um, this one is for the ladies out there. Uh, I'm wearing a towel <laughs> on my for head. Women. <laughs> uh, uh, and what I do is I put the towel around the back of my head, and then I start to twist. But then I hold the twist, the end of the towel between my knees while I put the headphones on from behind my oh. head. Oh. <laughs> So that I don't damage the headphones by getting them wet. They're separated from the wet towel. Okay. I'm a genius is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, effectively. Anyway, hi. This is The Great American Scream. It's a horror podcast where we talk about scary things, but in a goofy way. Just trying out a new new thing. I'm Devin Wright. (laughs) I'm Adam O'Connell. Welcome back to our series of Pride episodes. I thought it would be good. If after an intro bit that probably would have alienated alienated any new listener, I yeah. would introduce a new intro that would be welcoming to all the new listeners that we had already lost. Okay, yeah, I thought that was good. Yeah, I think okay, that's good. It's very uh, very thoughtful. Thank of you. you, thank you. As a uh, as a podcast host, I'm thinking about retention. Um, you but know? we're <laughs> we're uh, back on another round of uh, episodes celebrating Pride Month this month, and. You probably already know what this episode's going. Well, you know this episode's going to be about because you you read the, the title. title. <laughs> um, but uh, if you are one of our uh, lovely patrons over on Patreon, first of all, thank you. We love you. Um, thank but, you so much. Uh, you may have seen uh, that we posted a commentary track uh, for the first time for uh, I almost said what is arguably the queerest horror film ever made, but I think it's just objectively. Yeah, <laughs> I don't the think there's horror. many people arguing that like you know. Uh, Scary Movie 3 is the gayest movie around. Yeah. Um, And we've talked a lot about on this show how there's not a lot of mainstream queer horror films. Like there's a lot of indie queer horror films and underground ones, but not really a lot that are made by. Yeah. That not a lot that are made by a major studio and especially in part of big iconic franchises, um, which is what one of the things that makes this movie so special uh, that it is. One of the most beloved gay horror films of all time. That's right. It's A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. And I, if you haven't watched this movie, we need you to pause the podcast and go watch it now. 
I, we talked at the end of our commentary about whether I thought it was as gay as Adam described it. And it is exactly as gay as he described it, which is surprising. More gay than you would think. And also just a better movie than you would think. Mm -hmm. It's a romp. It's so much fun to watch. Gather your friends. After you tell them about the show, gather your friends, (laughs) watch the movie, then listen to the podcast, become a patron, listen to the commentary track. We'll be waiting here. Um, So this film was released on November 1st, 1985, uh, following, of course, the first iconic A Nightmare on Elm Street film. Uh, Grossed $30 at the domestic box office on a budget of $3 so... Made. Uh, I cannot believe the budget for this movie was three million. That's that's I just actually, hitting me now. <laughs> I that seems right to me. Is that okay. weird? That yeah, seems like correct. Um, it like did not re- crazy expensive, but also like not super cheap. Yeah. Um, it did receive mixed reviews upon uh, release, uh, but this uh, movie follows Jesse Walsh, a teenager plagued with nightmares about Freddy Krueger after moving into the former home of Nancy Thompson from the first film. And if you don't, if you haven't seen it, if you don't know, it's really gay. Like, it's really, so gay. really. And the fact that in the Elm Street franchise, one of the most iconic horror franchises of all time has a film in it that is this queer just delights me yeah and and like it seems like a movie you know and we'll talk about this a bit later but it seems like a movie that came out a few years ago and meant to be that gay yeah and it wasn't a big deal but really it did mean to be that gay but it came out 40 years ago yeah and and like Devin said before if you haven't seen it I do actually recommend watching it before you listen to this episode we're not gonna go we're gonna go into like the basics of the plot but not too much and we are gonna spoil it a little bit so uh, uh if you are a lover of uh the Elm Street franchise or if you're just a lover movies, just hey a lover if you're a lover there, you're a fighter you're <laughs> a dev- maker I don't know all the words that song <laughs> um and there is a lot to unpack with this film uh, like the text itself, the making of the film and its intentions, the invention of the male scream queen, Jesse as a character, the absolute amazing actor and person that is Mark Patton. It's it's hard to pick exactly where to start, but we're going to kind of go like, we're going to go from the surface and then go deeper. We're going to do, this is the Nightmare on Elm Street part two iceberg. Yeah, basically. Hour long YouTube video, <laughs> but a podcast. Um... So here's a fun fact that I learned about while I was researching this film. You always have fun facts. I've noticed this about you. The pre-production for this film began in April 1985. The movie was released in November of 1985. Oh, I love that. I love (laughs) that so much. The turnaround time. (laughs) Listen, gays get it done. So there's uh, one thing gays love, it's a deadline, you know? Uh, so the screenplay of this film was by uh, David Chaskin, and uh, they were actually between this screenplay and another idea by uh, Leslie Boehm about a possessed pregnancy, which they would end up using later for Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child. Um, so that just kind of got put okay. away for another part yep. of the franchise. Um, and uh, Wes Craven was invited to direct again, but he turned it down as he had problems with the script. And it shows that Wes <laughs> Craven is not directing this one. Um, what it's what not, problems could he have? It's not bad direction, but it's not Wes Craven. Yeah, um, yeah. But so he, specifically, he thought that the, the uh, quote possessed parakeet scene was quote ridiculous. Uh, Who would which ever it is. think that? 
Uh, and also, this is funny. He thought that the pool party massacre scene wouldn't work because most of the teens would be taller than Robert England, who was 5'10". Okay, first of all, I'm 5'9", so... But also, don't be reductive, Wes Craven. Like, what do you... He was like, oh, Freddie can't be scary if the other teens are taller than him. And when I read that fact, I was like, oh, he's probably like 5'4", 5'5", or something. And I googled it. He's (laughs) 5'10". But what... Does Wes Craven really think that the main scary thing about Freddy <laughs> is his is his is his huge hulking frame. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? And also he's what? a scrawny dude with a sweater on. Maybe it's your fault that your cattle call was all like, hello, I, we were looking for men to play teenagers 5'11 and above. That's a really good point. It did say on the actors access call 5'11 and above. Yeah. Um so this also uh led to kind of like where the the problems of this film began uh, with the director choice of Jack Shoulder. I reject your premise that there are any (laughs) problems with this film, but go on. Um, Who said at the time that he had, quote, no interest in doing horror films, but accepted the job because he thought it would put him on the map as a director. And that's my other thing with this movie is I do love this movie, but you can kind of tell it's directed by somebody who doesn't love horror movies. Yeah, I think that... So my argument about the directing of this film is... I would rather have had this movie directed by somebody who in a lot of ways seemed very hands off than somebody who wanted to be hands on, but bad, which I think might have been the other option. Okay, interesting. And we'll talk a little bit more. I think the good choices are made without the director's input. (laughs) Yeah. um, So principal photography finished in June and the film was released on November 1st. That's crazy. Um, so the film follows Jesse Walsh, played by Mark Patton, a high school student who has just moved into the Elm Street house, the previous home of Nancy Thompson. Uh, I love rumor- that. Keeping like the, yeah, keeping the house the same. Like, that's just such an interesting like way to do it. Yeah. I guess because you can't really do like Nightmare on Elm Street, not on Elm Street. Elm Street. Yeah, Although I'm fair. sure somewhere else in the franchise they're not on Elm they Street. They do that. Know? Yeah. Um, uh, and the, it's it's kind of framed as like, oh, that Nancy was this girl who like saw her boyfriend get murdered and then went crazy in her bedroom or whatever. Um, yeah, for me, somebody who's never seen the first Nightmare on Elm Street, <laughs> it was, it, don't worry, it's not necessary. I kind of liked that there was like lore that <laughs> I didn't on. understand. I think that's funny that you say that it's not necessary because in this film, there is zero explanation of Freddy Krueger, who he is or what I his abilities and powers are. He just shows up. And it's a immediately ran. film about internalized homophobia, Adam. I don't need it. It's like if you if you want to watch this, like besides for all the gay stuff, but just have an idea of what's going on in the grand scope of Nightmare on Elm Street, you do need to watch the first no, one because they offer you don't no need to exposition. know anything about him. What what part of like like why do I need to know Freddy Krueger's powers? Like he's just a scary dude who can do stuff. <laughs> Um, well, so Jesse is uh, plagued with some extreme... He walks through a fence. Yeah, he does walk through a fence. Um, but he passed through a wall in the first one. I digress. Uh, Jesse is plagued with some extremely sweaty nightmares. Of okay, Freddy. no, he is not... No, no, no. He is not plagued with sweaty nightmares. He is plagued with nightmares and sweatiness. <laughs> They're separate issues. We brought this up during the commentary, too, of that, like, we were wondering if Mark Patton, as, as an actor on set, was just sweating this much, or if they went, no, you need to be sweatier, and therefore what they lathered on him they to make him so shiny. They just him every <laughs> single time he walked on camera. Every time you see him, especially during the nightmare scenes, he is 
damp. And I get can it. We, it's because the whole thing is that like, oh, Freddy's like coming to the boiler in the basement. And that's what's making yeah, the house so hot. It's hot but, yeah. But none of the other characters are are drenched. Yeah. Nobody's quite as sopping uh, as he is. No, no other character is performing a Girls Gone Wild 2 a.m. <laughs> car wash scene. Like, and I also have to say, I'm just imagining like two people on set whose job it was to spray him down and it was like hold for sweat and they like (laughs) ran in that's the only choice the director made yeah was the boy has to be sweaty get some sweat on this boy (laughs) he has some nightmares about freddy following him showing up in his house being in the basement and then kind of possessing him and becoming part of him because freddy is trying to use jesse's body to escape from the dream world into the real world by becoming kind of like one with jesse this is not necessary I didn't know, like, I got this because I know who Freddy Krueger is from, like, cultural knowledge. Uh-huh. But I'm, when I'm watching the film, I don't, I don't need that. <laughs> I, like, I feel like this film is made worse by the explanation that, like, this is a dream, this is a dream monster who's using but the dreams to come. That's the whole come. franchise is he's the yeah, dream monster. Well, yeah, 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 but, like. He doesn't need to just be the dream. Mo- like in this film, he serves a like metaphorical purpose. <laughs> um, but so uh, and this scene, like, first of all, we never get to see Jesse before this starts happening to it. They really yeah. drop us in and in, in the thick of it, um, because like the second scene of the movie is his first confrontation with Freddy. Um, a yeah. immensely sexually charged scene. They're going to talk about a little bit more later but where yeah. Freddy says, I need you, Jesse. You've got the body and I've got the brain. Yeah, which is, uh, I didn't know that my go-to pickup line came from this. (laughs) What also makes me laugh about that is like, okay, so I'm going to assume Devin's never heard this before, but you out there. Have you ever heard the Will Smith song that he did to promote the Elm Street movies and Nightmare on My Street? If you haven't, go listen to it. It's called Nightmare on My Street. Add it to your Halloween playlist right now because it's a banger. But all of the Freddy dialogue from that song is from this movie it's not from the first one there's That's a part it's the best movie where 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 freddie okay this is gonna make it now it could sound silly but there is one part where freddie raps one line and the line is you've got the body and i've got the brain um so it's anyway. a great line yeah Anyway, so why did uh, Wes Craven not like this script? What the hell? <laughs> so uh, Jesse confides in two of his friends, uh, Grady and Lisa, and the romantic Grady, Grady the gay one, and yeah. Lisa the gay one. <laughs> the, the 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 like romantic plot is obviously like aimed at Lisa and Jesse, but Grady and Jesse have infinitely better chemistry, an insane I, amount of chemistry. I wouldn't say that it's like way better. I think mm-hmm. all three of them. Like both Grady and Lisa have great chemistry with Jesse. Mm-hmm. It is just that the romantic subplot is so it literally just feels like they're checking a box. It oh, yeah. genuinely feels as though they wrote a movie where it was gay and then they reread the syllabus and realized that one of the requirements was straight subplot. And they're mm-hmm. like, oh, right, right, right. And they went back through. Yeah. Like, we'll talk about our headcanons for this. <laughs> Lisa is a lesbian witch. Yeah. Like, like um, because that's also like by the third scene in this movie, right after this Freddy scene, Grady and Jesse are like roughhousing on the baseball field and Grady pulls Jesse's pants off and he's wearing a jock strap and then they fight and then Jesse like rips his sweatshirt. It's a lot. Gang. Y'all, <laughs> it's so much gang. The, 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 there are so many scenes in this film, some of them in a gay way and some of them in a horror way 
where by by the middle of the scene you're like what is going on and then by three-fourths into the scene you're going this is incredible and then by the end you're going what is going on again because it's gone back around yeah so jesse's nightmares start to get worse and worse and he's no longer able to control his own body and his sleep as like kind of the line between him and freddie begin to blur and things from the dream world start creeping up in his life and in his house like uh his birds explode uh the toaster catches yeah, his, on fire it's his birds are dead yeah <laughs> the birds explode um and at one point he wakes up but from not an- before getting a nice slice in on the dad oh yeah it's very dramatic um, at one point, he wakes up from a nightmare and, without explanation, runs off in the middle of the night in the rain to a punk leather bar in his pajamas, where uh, he is. Ca- and we're gonna we're gonna dive into this later. Yeah, we'll um, talk about it. <laughs> but in general, right now, he's caught by his gym teacher, who makes him run laps before presumably preparing to assault him. However, Freddie takes over and murders the gym teacher. We're gonna unpack all that later. There's Don't so worry. much. Li- li- there's so much to talk about. Yeah. Um, so Jesse believing he has no control over himself anymore and fearing for his life and the life of his friends and family abandons Lisa at her pool party. Lisa's been trying to like, she's like, I want to help you. Like, just open up to me. Like, I want to help. Yeah. He, and this isn't a belief he has. He has a big demon tongue. Yeah. <laughs> that comes out of his body. And he's yeah. like, maybe this is the time to make my exit. Yeah. So he abandons Lisa at a pool party and goes to Grady, uh, asking him to keep him awake. So Friday doesn't take over. Uh, in one of the most homoerotic scenes of the whole film, where he's laying on yeah. top of Grady shirtless, and he's like, "There's something inside of me, and it wants to get out." And Grady's like, "So you want to come sleep with me? Like, come on, gang." <laughs> yeah, come on, gang. Um, so this doesn't work, and Freddy slash Jesse ends up killing Grady before fleeing. Um, a great and loss. It a great loss. We do have to say one of the things that we will we will say over and over in this episode is that. Jesse's actor is just incredible. Like he's yeah. genuinely like just mesmerizing to watch, so engaging, and Grady is giving him nothing through <laughs> <laughs> the whole scene. He is such like I don't want to use the word himbo because himbo is a good complimentary word that we but use on Grady, people that we love. Grady the character is a himbo. Is a himbo, exactly. And but I Grady the actor is also a himbo, which means he's not a very good actor. <laughs> um, but anyhow, uh, so Lisa ends up following Freddy slash Jesse to this abandoned factory that they went to earlier because it's where Freddy Krueger used to work. Um, every Elm Street movie yeah. has to reveal another part of Freddy's past that they have a new location to go to besides the Elm Street house. And by the eighth yeah. movie, it's going to be like, oh, like, and in this one, this in is, this one, it's his it's, laundromat. <laughs> yeah, it's Call of Duty's map rust. It's yeah. a random like iron mill. And you're exactly correct. In the seventeenth movie, it will be this is the movie theater where he went on one kind of bad date with a girl named Jennifer. Yeah. Um, so she confronts uh Freddie Jesse, Freddie Jesse, and uh, uses the power of Fressy. love. <laughs> uses the power of love to free Jesse from Freddie. Uh, or does she? Because like any good Elm Street film, it ends with a jump scare twist that says Jesse may not exactly be out of this nightmare. Oh, dang. Um, that's right. The, the bus. Yeah. Oh, the we, bus that's the thing. We glazed over twice. a lot. There's in some, that you have to watch overview. this film. So please do go watch it because we didn't even talk about his family. Uh, we didn't talk about like there's a lot of the gay stuff we didn't talk about or go, go watch it. Go watch it. Um, so. The, I mean, the first thing, and this is when you go to the Wikipedia page for this film, 
the uh, heading uh, homoerotic subtext is longer than any of the other sections <laughs> of the Wikipedia page. Um, and I hesitate to call it subtext. Yeah, it's super text. Yeah, that's the thing. it's it. like super text or over text because it's so clearly there, but yeah. they're not saying it. Like it's so... I right, because never... it's, it's not the text. It is genuinely the, like when you're yeah. listening to a room full of choral singers and there's the overtone of them. Yeah. It's like, you know that meme that's like, tell me your ex without saying that you're ex? This is the yeah. prime example of like, tell me this film is gay without saying it's gay. Like right, they right. go so far in without ever acknowledging it. It's fascinating. Um, and it's so clearly a film that is like you said before, Devin, like itching for a gay protagonist that they had to slap a het romance on so it explicitly yeah. was not gay. Because that's the thing is that like when this film came out, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, but when this film came out, um, the first publication to call it a gay film was The Village Voice. Um, yeah. Um, and that's when New Line Cinema kind of looked at it and went, this movie is kind of gay, ah, isn't it? dang it. Um, <laughs> uh, which is like... The power of the gays to get this under, you know? Yeah. And like if without the without the heterosexual romance in it, then it would have never made it like straight up. It would have never made it to the theaters without the romance. In oh, it. for sure. Um, And it's not just with the stuff with the leather bar or with Grady or the gym teacher. Um, right. It's not it just the stuff explicitly <laughs> stated in the film, which again, yeah, it is. Right. But it is so much more than that. It's the whole central struggle of Jesse's character that would be there whether or not those like the leather bar scene or the, the locker room scene are there. Is that the whole point of Jesse that he keeps saying over and over again, there is something inside of him that wants to get out. Something that he is afraid of other people knowing about and something that he's afraid will hurt him or other people um and right in in a sitcom it would be like all of his lines about freddie would be laugh lines because the audience would think he's talking about being gay yeah like um it, they are all so but yeah it's not even a bait and switch it's just the bait yeah like it's just <laughs> the bait it is it is genuinely i use the iceberg thing jokingly but it mm. is genuinely an iceberg where like oh, at yeah. the top you have the het romance and then if you notice you know if you are kind of aware of some tropes or you know have watched some movies which apparently the execs that saw this movie didn't mm -hmm. you have the like explicitly gay stuff that is like the teacher and the leather bar and the scenes with grady and then you go one level deeper and then it's like oh this is actually a met like it's a sequel to a known horror franchise using the villain as a metaphor for being gay so maybe this is an anti-gay film and then yeah. you go one level deeper and you're like well maybe it's it's so yeah it's an iceberg um and freddie is not just the reference not i wouldn't call freddie the representation of jesse's like queerness but the representation right, for of sure. his struggle with whether or not to come to terms with his queerness because freddie is everything jesse is afraid will happen if he comes out and for a film that was released in 1985 right before the explosion of the aids crisis in the united states for gay men that is really significant right and it is so you know it it is the kind of thing that is so this is a silly stupid movie but it is genuinely such a nuanced aspect of it where you can make the argument like you could write an essay about how freddie is a bad representation of like the worries and the struggles with sexuality because uh like freddie is a killer and and what jesse is afraid of is not actually true and so are you you know showing 
teenagers that like the thing inside you is actually a scary dude with with knife hands. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, you go a level deeper and he is not just that. He is also he is the representation of the struggle, but he is also representative of what Jesse thinks his queerness is. Exactly. And and for this but time period, yeah, for this time period, that makes sense for him as a protagonist to have. Yeah. Um, and like, you know, maybe I'm giving this film too much credit. But <laughs> Almost definitely are. But, but there are certain pieces of art that do this. Yeah. Where, Freddy's where, whole thing is that he is fear. He's like Pennywise. He is the representation of fear. He appears as what pe- their nightmares, what people are afraid will happen to them, even though they're not realistic. And re- he brings the unrealistic fears people have to life and he uses it to kill them and destroy them. Yeah. Um, and of course, he would enter those people through their dreams, which is. Mm-hmm. Not only like a pretty clear metaphor for like our wishes and our yeah. fears and our whatever that like dreams represent our our wishes and nightmares represent our fear, but like also on like a more modern modernist level, our our dreams are also our like id manifest, like yeah. it is our our actual consciousness like portraying things to us. Yeah, which kind of makes this the perfect franchise for this film to be. I, I, like this. Yeah. This could not happen in the Halloween franchise. Now, the Halloween franchise isn't good, but it just could like it's different. It wouldn't make any sense. <laughs> it wouldn't make like, any sense. Yeah. Um, so there's some back and forth kind of he said he said things that we'll discuss later on on whether or not the homoeroticism was intentional and therefore intentional by who, because that's a big discrepancy too. Of course. Um, but so Robert England, who plays Freddy Krueger, his understanding of it uh, said, quote, the second Nightmare on Elm Street is obviously intended as a bisexual themed film. It was we did early, it, boys. <laughs> it was early eighties, pre AIDS paranoia. Jesse's wrestling with whether uh, to come out or not, and his own sexual desires was manifested by Freddie. His friend is the object of his affection. That's all there in the film. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> I, you know, I as a bisexual man, there's definitely a understanding with a character like Jesse, but I do think that it might, you know. England might be coming about it possibly the wrong way. It seems more to me that that specific explanation more suits a a homosexual man who is dealing with his compulsive heterosexuality. Yeah. Um, which, you know, this I don't want to get canceled on Twitter, <laughs> but it's totally okay for people to use bisexual as a transitional identity. And that's more what that feels like rather than like a bisexual person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also, I don't know where that quote, when that quote is from, because Robert England yeah. is an old man, TM. Um, so uh, I don't know exactly like in what uh, kind of like terms, because if he's using kind of like the older kind of queer understanding yeah. of bisexual or. For sure, for sure. So, um, But either way, Robert England saw it and saw it very obviously while he was filming, too. Um, Definitely. And- There's no way you say. <laughs> I, you know, I need your body, Jesse. Yeah, in that I way. love, God, I love Robert England. Okay, so uh, this is very evident in the screenplay, of course, but I think where we really have to thank for the good queerness of this film is Mark Patton's deliberate choice to play Jesse in this way. Um, and yeah. that gets complicated, as we'll talk about shortly with how Mark Patton approached and understood the film. Um, yeah. But it was his interpretation as a gay actor of Je- and uh, of Jesse that I think that in combination with the script is what makes the film a queer cult classic. Not what makes the film queer, but what makes it good. And what makes it worth 
keeping around. Yeah, like this movie with a straight actor in the lead would be horrible. <laughs> yeah, and it would just be it would be a film not of note at all. It would just yeah. be another sequel. It would be, it, yeah, just another sequel. It it like the the power he has. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it's often, just but, his choices as a queer actor that really make it what it is. Yeah, um, and you wonder how many of those were, you know, and we'll talk about this too. How many mm-hmm. of those were intentional choices by him and how many of them were a kind of synthesis of this script which you know we can talk about the intentionality of right. the script but and we will the definitely. synthesis of the script and the subtext intentional or not that mark Patton, you know glommed onto. yeah um and like some of my favorite things i just want to highlight of like the the queerness that we see in the film's text and what made it to the final cut um one thing i want to highlight the most is the scene in the gay leather bar uh, that uh, it's never really explained why he goes there. But in yeah. my opinion, it does not really have to be because we don't know what Jesse, if Jesse has been there before, but his central right. struggle. We, we never saw f- Jesse at zero. Right. Um, his central struggle in the film is not letting Frey take over. What if he goes to the gay bar because he's looking for a place where he feels like himself and not like Freddie? Because then we have to go and, oh, is Freddie compulsive heterosexuality? And that's what he's afraid of. And yeah. Um, he clearly doesn't feel like himself at school or at home. And like you said, we see him, we never see him at zero. We don't get glimpses into him as a person, just as a vessel for this struggle. Yeah. Um, the only time we really see it is when he's dancing in his bedroom by himself, which is another really gay scene. Yeah. And, and I feel like you kind of hit it on the head with, he's looking for a place where he feels like himself. I think that is like the scene that the most, can be spoken about mm. um but definitely in a different like it would it's something to write a paper about genuinely yeah but I, I think that the idea that uh you know Freddie is a kind of represents so many different things and maybe you know maybe uh Jesse had been there before but maybe you know in this town that there is known to be a leather bar that is you know accepting of not just straight people who are into leather, but also gay people who are into leather. And so, yeah. like, it it may not be a place where he feels like himself, but it feels like a place where he can belong no matter who he ends up being. Yeah. And that it is a, it is a literal capital S, capital S safe space where no matter who he is, he is himself, and that means he's not Freddy. Yeah, and that's one of my biggest problems with the film's climax, like the final kind of battle. I mean, I love that it's Lisa because, you know, I love a final girl. Um, yeah. She's very powerful. Um, but it's the fact that the the way that they do it in the film is that she's the one that rescues him. It's like the confirmation of the love of a woman is what brings like him, Jesse, kind of like into his own when it should be a journey of self-discovery. You know, if this right. movie was made now... Him. Yeah, yeah, it should be him and coming to terms with who he is, not Lisa one, telling him who he is. Right, that's the one point at which this franchise, actually two points, one of two points where this franchise fails this movie mm-hmm. because it's I, you wouldn't expect the person being possessed by Freddy to ever really be able to save themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just, Freddy is too powerful. Freddy is, that's, you know, in all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets, you know, you would expect... Uh, connection with other people to be the things that saves the people rather than they themselves, Mm -hmm. which fails this kind of journey of self-discovery and of self-acceptance. The other point is the the ending, the fact that like 
this was actually all just a nightmare and maybe it's not ending rather than, you know, tightening it up and making it uh, a cohesive story. Yeah. And like, and I know we mentioned this earlier and it was kind of like a half joke during the commentary track, but also no, it's not a joke, but how good would this <laughs> script be if Lisa was gay too? That's like genuinely, I, I, I think I made a joke that like, if you just remade this today, if you mm-hmm. made an actual remake where the main thing you changed was that they were both explicitly gay, when you do an explicitly queer reading of this text, all of it. The one thing that fails this movie actually doesn't like because now Jesse is not being saved by like the love of a woman. He's being saved by the love of someone else who is like him. Yeah. Or himself, like his acceptance and love of himself. Right. And and maybe that and that love of himself can come from somebody like or, or can be found with the help of somebody like Lisa who would understand what he's going through on some deep level yeah which is great like a movie where there isn't you know where you have in this version a kind of barrier gaze trope which kind of sucks that grady dies but Mm -hmm. you have at the end of it two gay people who one saves the other through just like gay friendship that's like 2013 tumblr's dream yeah i'm obsessed with like writing about gay friendship and like a like consuming media that is about gay friendship over gay romance. And like this film is already gay without a gay romance in it. And if it was remade, it doesn't yeah. need, you don't it need to need add a romance. romance. Yeah. It, yeah. Jesse doesn't need to end up with somebody. That's right. the other thing the too tension about. itself is good. Yeah. As it is. That's like the other thing too, about a lot of like queer media is people think like, Oh, for media to be exclu- explicitly queer, there needs to be a queer romance. Not the case. Right. I don't Oh, right. Um, uh, so uh, now I want to talk about uh, kind of Mark Patton as an actor and his experience filming this because that this is, is now the Mark Patton fan now, club podcast. Yeah, the Mark Patton stand podcast. Um, but because uh, besides the films like kind of overt queerness, the making of it is probably one of the most iconic things about it because Mark Patton in 2019 released a documentary called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which is such a good title, by the way. Yeah, um, oh, my God. And yeah. the poster is really good, too. Google, if you would stop what you're doing, Google poster right now. It's a great poster. Are you um, back? It's a good poster. Yeah. Um, so uh, in, and in recent years, he's become pretty open with his experience as an actor and a young, young queer actor on set for this film. This was his big break. In this specific, right. And in this specific time. Yeah. Um, so he was put in a pretty shitty situation as basically when the film started to get mixed reviews, uh, Chaskin, the person who wrote the screenplay, Basically, more or less blames it on Patton's betrayal being, quote, too gay. Um, And which incorrect on all counts. Yeah. If it was if the script was explicitly gay, it would have succeeded in theaters. I said it. Yeah. Both Chaskin and Shoulder, the director, would deny intentional homoeroticism for years until Chaskin finally came out in 2012 and said it was intentional, but kept quiet about it because he said something that's like, when people started talking about it, like my script was being outed and I it freaked right. me out and I didn't know how to feel about it. Yeah. And that is incredibly relatable. Like, yeah. uh, like nobody should come out of this. Uh, neither, neither Chaskin, <laughs> <Nobody. like, laughs> neither Chaskin nor Patton should come out of this. Like as like, we're not going to be pitting two people who made good queer art against each other. Yeah, it's it, totally it just, understandable that in 1985, 
that if somebody says your script is too gay, that you're going to be like, no, it isn't. It wasn't me. Yeah, like, it, duh. It, yeah exactly. It, it does suck that basically Chats and Shoulder together just kind of made Pat and the scapegoat for, for sure. why they thought the film yeah. didn't do as well as they thought. Uh, Shoulder says that he sees the homoeroticism now, but at the time was too concerned with the film's production time and the intricate special effects that he had no idea how to do to notice. Yeah, which I again, think understandable. <laughs> the hilarious. Idea, but the idea of him going, I didn't notice those two dudes kissing because I was really worried about this blood bag. <laughs> That is incredibly relatable. <laughs> yeah. Um that I understand. Yeah. That's that's like that's like me in high school not knowing that somebody was flirting with me because I was very I was very caught up in this math problem. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um so this film was kind of slated to be Patton's big break. He was already a um accomplished theater actor, having starred in the Broadway production of Come Back to the Five and Dine, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, famously the- very queer show. Yeah, um, and about the breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> <products>. <laughs> breakfast sandwiches. Um, and, and Patton played the son, the yeah, guy who's he, the son. He does. He does play a queer character in this, uh, in the play, and in the same role in the film. Uh, it's actually a trans role with Patton playing the character. Wait, wait, Patton playing the character pre-transition, and then a cis actress playing her post-transition. Which, although is still not what you should do, yeah. is better than a lot of films made in the past ten years have done it. Yeah, I mean, for the time, like... Yeah, no, still not how you should do it. But like, Of course not. Knowing that films in 20... Like, as a trans person, knowing that films in 2020 just cast, like, one cis man to play a trans woman for the entire film, and this film at least... Ca- like, Right, this, this movie at least understood that when the audience would understand the character to be a, uh, to be a woman yeah. traditionally, that they would have what the audience would know as a woman play the person so that you like yeah that's not what this podcast is about but i just thought it was nice pointing it out um so he was uh pretty open in the interviews in scream queen about how the culture of uh around sexuality in theater and film from his experience were so different because when he got to start in he got to start in manhattan theater in the late 70s and 80s is one of the gayest places you can be um And because this film was supposed to launch him into a successful film career, they basically were like, oh, you know, the last one kind of launched Johnny Depp into stardom status. This is going to be yours. So his public image was as closely guarded as possible. Right. Uh, There's a story on set where Patton describes how during that first scene between Jason and Freddie and Freddie's like rubbing like the the blade of the glove like against his lips yeah very erotic but england initially asked if he could put the blade in jesse's mouth icon oh um, <laughs> i almost just said a slur on the podcast <laughs> but um Patton's makeup artist pulled him aside and basically said listen for the sake of your reputation and your public image don't do it because like that's gonna be it for you i don't want to be one of these cringy <laughs> zillennials but that's some Cinna from Hunger Games shit. Um, I think, I didn't know when I was reading it, because I, I, it's from a quote from Patton. I don't know if the makeup artist was queer as well and was right. saying it in kind of like a, a, a protection of like, listen, like, you yeah. want to do this thing. Uh, I'm hoping that's what it was. Um, right. Because The Patton, story itself reads that way. But, yeah. You know. Um, Patton was pretty open about kind of like being bullied as a kid in Kansas City for his sexuality and just who he was and how theater Manhattan was the first place where he really felt welcome. Uh, and then he said uh, the quote was he said everything that was a negative where I came from suddenly became positive. And that's a that's a 
it's very much that kind of like uh, from like Annie, the like NYC. Like it's very <laughs> idyllic in the sense that like suddenly you leave this small town and suddenly everything about you is celebrated and welcomed and then only to right. immediately get thrown into Hollywood and go, no, 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 never mind. You can't do that. Right. It is such an interesting, especially the way we conceive of, you know, career success in media that, you know, theater is considered success, but Hollywood's considered real success. And mm. that for some reason, the lesser success is often more accepting. Yeah. A lot of the times more artistically fulfilling. Yeah. But, I mean, it's it's an interesting uh, insight from 40 years ago that is still true today. Yeah. And he, of course, immediately accepted Elm Street 2 and he booked it because um, it was the opportunity of a lifetime. Like Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one was a, a smash at success. And he was an unknown actor at the time being asked to star in the sequel. I would take it, yeah. too. I got um, it. Yeah. And he quickly, re- one reading the script, quickly realized exactly how gay and how camp this movie was and how it was basically going against all the advice that managers and executives had given him about appearing straight in the public eye so he'd be successful. Um, yeah. Uh, f- another fun fact, producer and uh, New Line Cinema founder Robert Shea, uh, he cameos as the bartender at the S&M Club <laughs> and claims that he still doesn't see the homoeroticism in the film. You're telling me that this man who... I must remind you, not only you, Adam, but the listeners back home, yeah. that this man, in his cameo, gives the boy a beer and a glass from which to drink it yeah. and doesn't see that that was gay. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, like I said, when, when the kind of the press storm came out after the film and uh, like the, the kind of queerness of the film was kind of being pinned on him, he ended up leaving... Uh, the entertainment industry for quite a yeah. while. Uh, he was being offered parts, but uh, was too kind of emotionally drained by the experience of Elm Street 2 and the prospect of having to go back and forth on his identity. Because that's the other thing, too. Nobody was saying that he was a bad actor because he's not. He's a great okay, actor. And he was right. being offered great parts. He was offered a, a gay lead on a TV pilot in 1987, but turned it down just because he was so drained after yeah. the experience for Elm Street 2. Um and I have a quote from, me, from him here from the uh, – like when he was talking with these TV executives and it said, uh, I was sitting at a table with 14 gay men who were telling me things like, will your girlfriend be okay about this? When people ask you, are you gay? Will you feel comfortable saying you're not? Holly, and then kind of going in as, as this was about the same uh, time when the, the AIDS crisis in the United States really started to be – yeah. insanely prominent amongst the, the queer community, especially in California. Uh, he said, Hollywood looked like a ghost town. You'd see people and three months later they'd be dead. I thought, my God, half the world is dying and these people are sitting here having this conversation. I didn't get into acting for this. Completely right. understandable. Yeah, and and completely understandable on on so many different levels because how how frustrating it it must have been and it, and it still can be at times when again, you get into acting and a lot of the, and Adam, I'm sure you can relate, but the feeling of coming into acting as, as a, as a gay person, a lot of the things that are stereotypically gay are positives in acting, you know, like the ability to emphasize the, the, uh, ability, especially for men to be more emotional than is socially acceptable. And, for that to bring you, you know, a sense of belonging and success, you know, not only artistically but financially and feeling like you're you're doing something and part of that success comes from this thing that you were taught was bad 
Mm-hmm. And then you get to a point where that success brings you an opportunity for more success. And those very things they still want you to do from a business standpoint, but they don't want you to do from a personal standpoint. Yeah. Uh, and the the frustration of nobody was knocking his acting. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is kind of honestly like even worse that like, yeah. oh, you know, it's that, not like, the work he's doing. Right. Exactly. It's who he is. Um. And so uh, after this, he leaves the entertainment industry and kind of goes off the radar for about 25 years. Uh, During this time, he branched into interior design and architecture. Yes. uh, After moving around between New York and Florida before uh, marrying Hector Morales uh, Mondragon, I'm sure. Sick name. uh, And moving to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Um, But in 2010, yeah. (laughs) I need, I swear to God, Patton, if you were on that gay uh, yacht during the COVID pandemic that was in Florida Vallarta, I'm coming for you. <laughs> I highly doubt it. He's a good I don't man. Think, I don't, he probably wasn't. Um, so in 2010, the producers of the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary, Never Sleep Again, awesome documentary, by the way. It's four hours long. So buckle up. A great documentary. Um, reached out after using a private investigator to find him, to yes. try and interview him. And he agreed to the interview, kind of swayed by the effort it took to locate him. The gays love a stunt. The gays love a <laughs> um, stunt. And ever since that, he that hit kind of the, one of the first times he appeared on camera in 25 years, he's been kind of slowly re-entering the entertainment world ever since because he started to see the effect that Elm Street 2 had on queer horror fans. He started to make appearances at these horror conventions and he's yeah. meeting people uh, and he would describe interactions with gay fans who would tell him like, you were the first person I ever saw on screen that I felt would love me back. Don't make me cry in this podcast. <laughs> That's the thing is that like, imagine being Mark Patton and thinking that this great movie that you're supposed to be in was a huge flop, disappearing off the map for 25 years in the middle of the HIV AIDS crisis in the United States, only to come back 25 years later and be meeting these like young queer people who were like, you're a gay icon. Yeah. Yeah. That's and crazy. And again, not just for the work you do, but for who he was. Yeah. And and that, yeah, I'm, y'all, I'm crying in the club right now. <laughs> that well, just makes me think of, you know, I've been watching a lot of, I told Adam this, I've been watching a lot of Culture Cruise on YouTube, which is an incredible series that you should watch. It's about queer representation in uh, popular media, specifically television. Um, and, you know, I'm one who loves uh, crapping on forms of representation that I don't exactly love. Uh, you know, Glee is pretty cringy. I understand yeah. it. But the power of seeing a, a a character, you know, for me, like Kurt or more so Blaine, uh, <laughs> that I was like, oh, this is a person who I really identify with, who yeah. I who I think would like me back. That is such a powerful thing in 2009. Think of how incredibly like moving that would have been in 1985. Yeah. Or, um, in, you know, even more so in 1986 and seven and eight. Yeah. Um, and so during his time away from the spotlight, he was diagnosed with AIDS. Um, and after having an ex-boyfriend pass away from HIV um, and seeing how like the, the queer community was treated in the midst of the crisis and how the community was decimated, he is insanely sure to use the platform that he now has to talk about it uh, in a world he still feels like is still ignorant to the issue, especially Definitely. in the horror film where that is never, ever talked about. Um, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and in uh, time it is, it's usually not good. Yeah. 
And uh, when he's asked to speak at horror conventions, he says, uh, I always start my my pitch with, I'm going to talk about Freddy Krueger for 57 minutes, and then you have to give me three minutes to talk about AIDS, um, which I think is such a... That's Broadway fights AIDS. Uh, like, it's such a good use of too. his platform. Yeah. Um, and like, like, this is now a Mark Patton stand podcast, because I so, like, admire not just his, like, performance in this movie, but, like, him as a person, a person who was like treated like garbage in, in what was supposed to be the most formative years of his career only to come back and use the the adoration people now have for him to uh to 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 talk about things that are important in circles where they are not talked about like i i adore this man without a doubt yeah yeah um, and of course, in 2019, he co-produced uh, the documentary "Scream Queen" by Nightmare on Elm Street, where a lot of this research is from. By the way, this is primarily what I used to research the documentary, um, telling of the making of the film and the effect it had on him. It is excellent. If you have Shutter, it's on Shutter. Uh, highly recommend watching it. And one of the things they point out in the film is like, are we putting too much cultural significance on a significance on a movie that really isn't super well known? Maybe. Probably, but the importance yeah. that it has on the people that it affects, I think, outweighs that. Yeah, and I mean, not to like be grandiose about it, but like every cult film has that at some point. Yeah. Like there is always a critical mass where suddenly this cult film is worth the you know whatever love it's been getting for years from a smaller aspect of the community. There were you know decades when people would say the same thing about Rocky Horror. And, you know, it's Rocky Horror. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to take my minute uh, to talk a little bit about AIDS because I know there are gays who watch or listen to this show. And hey, um, uh, get tested, use protection if you're in the U.S. and have access to it. Prep and PEP are incredible resources, but not a substitute for just regular smart sex. Uh, In terms of worldwide, you can check out HIV.gov. It actually has a lot of different resources for uh, places to donate uh, either your volunteer time or your money, especially when it comes to worldwide organizations or organizations that work outside of the U.S. Because while in the U.S. HIV/AIDS is still a huge issue and it is still one of the leading deaths of men aged uh, 18 to 30, it is an even bigger issue in places like uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and it adverse more adversely affects uh, communities of color. So it's the kind of shit that our money and our time should be going towards fighting. Yeah, so. do not ever be ashamed about getting tested. Um, if there are places, look for local uh, queer centers in your area that do free testing, free, confidential. Um, no shame, absolutely no shame in being safe. Absolutely not. Um, but thank you for being safe out there. Um, hey, and hey, when Mark- we, when, every time that we said stay safe out there, we were talking about sex because we want to make sure that you're having safe sex. And finally, Mark Patton, if you're out there, please be on our show. Mark Patton, I'm begging you. I think like we've talked about people we've wanted on this show before, but this is the first person that I think about that if we got to talk to, I, I got goosebumps thinking about it, like being able to I, talk to him. The thing about Mark Patton and let's let's hope he listens to this episode specifically, is I think he is the perfect intersection of person we would love so much that would like thrill us to get to talk to and people we can probably actually get into contact with. That's what I'm thinking. So like, like literally thinking that's like, if you look at me and you're like, you 
where you could either talk to Robert England, Freddy Krueger, or Mark Patton. I think I would pick Mark Patton. Not, yeah, sorry. Not sorry, that I Bob. wouldn't want to talk to Robert England because I do, but oh, do yeah, I want to sorry, talk to Robert Mark England. We're going to have to push you back one more week. We need to talk to Mark. Um, if you want Mark Patton on our show, actually, don't bother him. Don't. No, please don't, please don't bother him. <laughs> please oh don't God, bother please him. don't. <laughs> please don't bother listen, him. We're both. Um, just we're manifest. Both, just and, manifest it for us. Yeah, manifest it for us. We're both entertainment professionals. We can. <laughs> we have channels. It's just, okay. Just manifest it for us. I, that's it. Yeah, that's all we got. We're for just you. left speechless because we love this gosh dang movie so much. Thank you so yeah. much for listening to this episode of the Great American Scream. If you enjoyed, please leave a rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. But the best way to spread the word, and we ask this every episode, but seriously, tell a friend who likes horror stuff or likes gay stuff or likes them both. Uh, we promise that they will probably maybe like the show and also you'll have something new to talk about, which is always good. We also have a Patreon at patreon.com slash greatscreampod. We have early access to episodes and brand new commentary track for this very movie yes. that you can listen to while you watch this very good movie. It's not nearly as thoughtful as this was. It is mostly jokes. <laughs> it is mostly goofs. It's so mostly if you... jokes and me eating pea drinks. <laughs> yeah, and both of our air conditioners are on. So, you know. Adam, can you put our social medias, please? Uh, yeah, you can check us out on Facebook at The Great American Scream or much more frequently on Twitter and Instagram at Great Scream Pod. Uh, please send us what you think about this movie. I want to hear all of your takes and opinions on it. Uh, and it, and if you listen to the commentary track, uh, let us know if you liked it and you want us to do more. We will totally do it. Uh, you can For tweet sure. us or post using the hashtag TGAS. And as always, if there is something that you would like to hear about on the show, please tweet it at us. Let us know because your suggestion may become a topic for a future episode. Yes, special thank you goes out to Michael Segura, who does the disclaimer at the beginning of the show, as well as C.V. Viola, who does the intro and outro music. You can find him on YouTube and on Twitter. An extra, extra special thank you goes out to all of our men in various fields on Patreon. Uh, thank you to <laughs> Regina, Ben, Bree, Gail, and Chris, as well as our three kings, but there are actually only two of them. Thank you to Joyce and Melinda. I have been Devin Wright. I'm Adam O'Connell. And hopefully you have been spooked. Uh, don't buy the house if murder happened there, even if it's a really good deal, because the boiler won't turn off, your toaster will will alight into flame, and your son and will your be so sweaty. <laughs> your son will be so sweaty. We can't stress that enough. He'll be so sweaty. Your parakeet will slice you over the cheek and a girl will jump rope in a very menacing way. <laughs> Stay safe. Happy Pride. When you're doing real estate, say safe. <laughs> Happy Pride. <laughs>